Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's another edition of the Cherries Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, joined as every week by Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, we have some news, another appearance coming up for you in Niles, Ohio at the library there. You want to talk about that for a minute and give people the details? Yeah, that'll be at the McKinley Library in Niles, which is a cool place. I've spoken there before. It's, uh, you know, part of the, it's next to the regular library there in Niles, and it's a thing but they have all these presidents in there it's kind of it's, it's a cool thing you feel like you're about in 1890 it has like balconies and all that so what do you mean they have all the pre- these president presidents yeah they have like yeah they have busts to their heads and ah. some like you know little it's a history thing and um so it's really good 6 30 it's free on march 7th at 6 30 niles mckinley library and i'll sign books say hello to people and all that all right well, Terry, we've got a lot to go through today. Uh, I th- the Cavs, obviously, at the break. I know you wrote a column over the weekend about grading the Cavs. And also, mm-hmm. the, we, we haven't podcasted since Kevin Love's contract was bought out by the Cavs. So we can get to that. Uh, the Brown, there's some Browns news. We, there's a lot going on with the Guardians. They're at spring training. So uh, I guess we'll get into it. Uh, so the Cavs, the Kevin Love era in Cleveland ended a little unceremoniously. And Chris Fedor, our colleague, has a, has a good piece up on Cleveland.com right now if you want to check it out. Just capturing like did it have to end like this um i guess first of all terry i guess what, what yeah for people haven't read it what would and chris did it have to end like that and chris said yeah just basically chris's point is that given the up and down nature of kevin love's career in cleveland like he i guess he wasn't surprised that it ended like this and that it, it kind of reflected a little bit what his career was like with all the ups and downs and and he makes the point of like it's it's best to remember the high points like that's of the good things that Kevin Love did here. So, uh, what was your reaction, Terry? This has kind of been a slow burning story the last week or so, but right move, right? Well, the um, this is what I thought was going to happen after the twenty twenty one season. Uh, if you recall, at that point he had missed one hundred eight out of a possible two hundred twelve games uh, over the previous three years. And that was also where he was fighting with John Beeline and just looked like he'd rather, you know, eat raw eggs, shell and all, than be in (laughs) Cleveland. I mean, he really was grumpy and so on. And I'm sure injuries had part of to do with it losing. And I even wrote a column after that um, season of 
uh, in the summer of 21, say if they can't trade him, they have to just let him go, uh, buy him out. And at that point, he had two years left on the contract. Well, they decided to bring him back another year, see if he can get in shape. And then he surprised, I think, a lot of people, certainly me. He played 74 games, which is like the most games he played in six years. Uh, he adapted to that thing coming off the bench. He was number two in the six-man-of-the-year voting. Uh, and they found a way. They wanted to keep him between 20 and 22 minutes. They thought that would help keep him healthy. And it actually worked for a year. And then this past year, um, he was playing pretty well till the middle of November, and he hurt the thumb. From November 18th on, that's when the thumb injury was, he shot 35% from the field, 30 on threes. And he wasn't getting particularly better. In the month of January, when he the last time he was playing, he was 11 for 48 on three-pointers. And then he had missed the last 12 games. Um, and there was, you know, not only the thumb, but the back problems. And clearly, JB didn't trust him on defense at all. So in that regard, if you're not going to play him, I just think it would be a big mistake just to keep him there. I mean, some people said, well, couldn't they try to trade him? Well, nobody, even even with $8.5 million left on the contract, that's what was left. Teams figured, why should we pay that? Let's see if they'll buy him out. And there just wasn't much of a market. I mean, there was a lot of concern for some teams. We trade for this guy, and A, the back is bothering him or the thumb still hurts, or B, uh, he just can't play anymore at 34. So... um Kevin wanted to go somewhere else to play. He's going to be a free agent in the summer, so that made sense. I'm glad they just let him go, let him pick his team, even though it's a contender with Miami, and let's see how it plays out. But he squeezed one more good year out of this stuff than I thought he would. Yeah, and t- so, Terry, there's kind of like two parts to the to the Love legacy. One is is the 2016 championship mm-hmm. season and, and the Warrior Series, and the other one is – the way he did stick with it, I mean, he had some down, down moments after LeBron left with mm-hmm. the, the throwing the ball in bounds at one game and, and giving up a three-pointer where he basically just quit on the play and, mm-hmm. and kind of had quit on the team. But he's kind of been the guiding or a guiding influence in this resurgence of the Le- LeBron-less Cavs and, and his leadership and just kind of showing these guys how to be pros. Um, I think those are kind of the two parts of his legacy, right? Yes, there's a couple of things. Number one is when he was traded here in the summer of 14, he had only one year left on his contract. And I remember writing, well, look, you know, he could walk in, in the summer of 15. Um, the Cavs were pretty confident that he would not. But you could even give – you're not supposed to give a team a verbal agreement, but they do it all the time. But so what? They could say, yeah, you know, verbal agreement, then decides in the summer of 15, I'm out of here. And the Cavs would at that point have traded him. Uh, uh, Wiggins was the main guy in the deal there. So um, he signs one extension, and then he signs a second extension in the summer after LeBron leaves. So he's actually signed two extensions to stay here. So that says something good about him. Um, Secondly, he finally became the leader in the post-LeBron era that they wanted him to last season. And a lot of that had to do with hard work that J.B. Bickerstaff did to kind of figure out where Kevin was. in his career, convince him he could be a factor coming off the bench. Bickerstaff was a young assistant with Minnesota when Kevin was a young player, and they had had a bond and and a trust. So that worked out pretty well. And rather than have this thing drag on any longer, where then after every game, Bickerstaff gets the question, well, why didn't Kevin Love play? And, you know, his answer would be he can't guard anybody. 
uh, and he's not making any shots. And I, I know you don't want to say that. So that's, you know, how it goes. And really, if you're Kevin Love, you're sitting there, they're playing a Coro in front of me. They're playing everybody in front of me. Some people say uh, that is Danny Green had to do with it. Danny Green's a little bit like a Kevin Love acquisition for the Cavs. In other words, uh, Miami's taking Kevin on to see, hoping his back is okay or the thumb is okay or whatever it is, they gets better. And if not, he's out at the end of the year. The Cavs are, are hoping Danny Green, who had had major knee surgery in the offseason, will finally will start to get healthy, and he can be the type of small forward making threes, doing some defending that he had done in the past. Neither team really knows if physically these players are going to work out. Well, and the one thing the Cavs did know, and you, you kind of mentioned this, Terry, is that they are better with Dean Wade on the floor than they are with Kevin Love. I mean, yeah. that, and Chris Chris Fieder has been writing about this uh, the last week. You look at the numbers, there is no doubt they are a better team when Wade is on the floor. And so that was time to make the move. And now, I mean, Kevin Love could be playing against the Cavs in a couple of weeks. So, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I mean, they're better with almost just about everybody. I, I round some of the it gets a little complicated. The real plus minus per hundred possessions and things like that. And that's where Dean Wade scores real high. That's the kind of stat that Kobe Altman, those people like, uh, and Kevin was pretty, pretty low. So. Yep. And that game against Miami is going to be March 8th. So, all right, Terry, I want to ask you taking all of Kevin loves time in Cleveland. Do you think that his number should be retired when the time comes? Absolutely. Um, he's a big part of that championship time he had multiple all-star appearances um most of these guys had some up and down stuff when they were here Uh, and you look at the there's a couple of sort of strange people in the uh hanging from the uh ceiling there i mean one is nate thurman who played a year and a half and i think that was partially done because he's from uh he's from the akron canton area and that was uh kind of honoring him that way. And also on Bingo Smith, but that because they started to retire those numbers because he's, the franchise was so new back then, didn't start till 1970 and it didn't have a lot of folks. You have Austin Carr up there. I mean, I saw Austin Carr play. Had Austin not gotten hurt, he would have been a perennial and all, all star and everything else, but he broke his foot as a rookie and battled all kinds of other injuries. Uh, Kevin loves better than Austin Carr. He's better than Bingo Smith. He's better than Nate Thurman was here. Um, he, I don't know if he's as good as Larry Nance or not, but it's close. Um, I think Doherty's better. His career was cut short, but Doherty was a 20, 20.9 rebound guy, uh, a consistent all-star. Um, you know, Price, until uh, Donovan Mitchell showed up, I thought was the second best player to play here. Now, Kyrie's the second most talented player to LeBron. But with Tyre, Kyrie, you just get all this stuff. And every team... After Kyrie leaves, goes, man, he was one of the most talented guys ever to play here. But you just get all this stuff. <laughs> and, you know, you just, I mean, maybe one day that number gets up there. But for me, that's got some real time has to pass. Whereas you mentioned for all of Kevin's up and down, he signed two extensions, was here, what, eight and a half years. Um, I thought he sacrificed a lot also during those years with LeBron. I mean, he was the guy that, you know, LeBron liked to yell at. And he took it. And he really did learn to improve his defense because when he was at Minnesota, he was known for on defense, basically just staying under the rim so he get all those defensive rebounds. He did not like to like that thing he did in the playoffs in 2016, jump out on the guard. He didn't even want to try to do that stuff. 
at least now he started to try it. Sometimes he did it pretty well. Well, and like you say, Terry, he was the guy in Minnesota. I mean, he was yep. their number one scoring option. I mean, he was probably scoring 25 points a game up there, and he did sacrifice when he came down here. But, you know, you pretty much, during his eight, almost nine seasons here, you could pretty much mark him down for 17 points and 10 boards a night and mm-hmm. and, and and a charge. <laughs> and a charge. <laughs> I mean, he, about, yeah. he did a couple things that people don't do very well anymore. One is he you mentioned charging. Second uh, outlet passes were tremendous. Uh, two-handed over the head, outlet pass, 60, 70 feet. Uh, Wes Unseld used to throw passes like that and some of the other old-school guys. Thirdly, he actually did know how to throw the ball into the post. You know, I whine about that every single week. Uh, he knew how to do that, and along with the three-point shooting and defensive rebounding. So, you know, his game was good. I do hope he could pull himself together because I happen to just have a, a, a soft spot for him because he kept signing the contracts to stay. Granted, they're for a lot of money, but in the NBA, guys leave – they leave 50, 100 million on the table all the time. I mean, or it's just it's just mind-boggling. Uh, what I heard on the on the contract, so um, he signed for three point one million with Miami. It's it's their uh, mid level exception. Um, the Cavs, I heard they negotiated uh, a settlement, and one agent told me he wasn't positive, but he said he's pretty sure the give back for love was about a million two. So let's just say it was there. In other words, the Cavs basically gave him a little over seven million out of the eight and a half. Uh, to go away. And that number of million two is usually like what it would be or million five, somewhere in there of what the um, veteran minimum would be at this point. So in other words, by the way, Kevin will have come out of this making more money than he would have had he stayed. Yeah, man, it's, it's crazy to think about You're right though. I mean, these guys want to play and have a meaningful role and they'll leave a million bucks on the table to do it. I mean, that's how much money they have. It's really, and sometimes it's, I mean, it's good business. If Kevin wants to play next year, He's got to show he could play this year. Yep, it's contract year. So, um, hey Terry, you mentioned a couple things in your column that I wanted to get into a little bit deeper. It, it is the All Star break, and that's traditionally a time to kind of evaluate smaller and bigger issues with the team. One of the questions you got into is: Is the Donovan Mitchell trade worth the price that the Cavs paid of Laurie Markkinen, Colin Sexton, Ochai Agbaji, the draft picks, and and you said in a word, yes, it is, and. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could take a second just to explain why you think it's been worth it. And there's obvious reasons, but there's some other ones, too, that I know you want to mention. Well, I mean, the, the, some people look at the Utah end of the deal. And Laurie Markkinen, my goodness, he's – and I've been a big, big Markkinen fan, but I didn't know he's going to average 24 points. And his shooting has been very good. I mean, he's a legit all-star. I mean, it wasn't just let's find somebody from Utah to play in Utah in that game. I mean – he was that. Sexton is coming off the bench, averaging 13 points, shooting pretty close to 48%. Um, and uh, 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 Baje actually has, has some nice games here and there for them. And, of course, they have all the draft picks. But none of those guys, you know, are as good as Donovan Mitchell. And I think the Cavs needed a star in this prime to help them take that next step up. And now – you know, if Mitchell only plays for three years and becomes a free agent and leaves, uh, we may be saying it's not so great. But right now in the NBA, they toss these first-round picks around like they're nothing. Four picks, five picks, they don't care, goodbye, you know. So it's changed. And I'd make the trade, but 
I'm happy for Markkinen because I, I always thought he could play. And he uh, is, is really found himself. And I think what coming, I think coming here, what helped him was um, even though he was quote unquote out of position, a small forward, they really increased his confidence of being able to play defense. They could defend and do that. You know, J.B. Bickerstaff, and, and I get why fans sometimes are frustrated with some of the tactical stuff. He is good with people, and he's good with culture. And that, in the NBA, that's like 80% of coaching, in my mind. It really is. Oh, especially, yeah, especially in the NBA. I mean, sometimes, Terry, when you're watching a game and they do mic'd up in the huddle, yeah. it's all like motivation and and hey we got to change we got to be more aggressive it's never it's not so much x's and o's the nba coach's job is mostly managing mm-hmm. personalities and keeping things cohesive and culture just like you said maybe more than any other sport right well the i used to show you what a different world it was when i covered the cavaliers at the old coliseum we actually the three beat guys had the chairs right next to the end of the bench we could hear the timeouts and I mean, now, of course, Mike Fratello, by the way, took over. The first thing he did was see that seat chart, and I think he sent us to Siberia. <laughs> so that was the end of that. That ended. Uh, but so Lenny Wilkins, who uh, was really a, a master technician, he was far more of an X's and O guy. He's been a big motivation guy. But even he in the huddle, first of all, the first 10 to 20 seconds, he didn't say anything. He would just kneel down for a second when everybody calmed down. And then he would you know, pull out the thing, and it would just be one or two quick things. He said, this is it. And then he would sometimes say, remember, guys, less is more. Less is more. Don't try to do too much. This is what we want to do. You know, we can do this. And even in his own way is motivation as opposed to all this, you know, trying to make it look like you're, you're, you're climbing Mount Everest with uh, a space capsule on your back and bare feet. We've got to do all these calculations it's a bad metaphor but i think you get the idea this is the hardest thing you could possibly imagine doing no it's a basketball game and if you really want to go get a rebound and block out you could block out and go get a rebound if you're willing to help your guy on defense you can do that if you're willing to make the extra pass you can do that and if you just care about scoring and messing up everybody else you can do that too yeah, to keep it simple. Great, great advice. It's a long season, and you can't be throwing chairs against the wall trying to fire no, guys up. It, it doesn't no. really work. With and JB's had pros. his moments too. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. He knows because of all. By the way, and that works because he, when he isn't sure to go whether to go. This I, one of my things in life too that I say is if you're not sure to go positive or negative, go positive. You can always go negative later. And generally, if you're going positive, so when you go negative or you got to complain, people are far more willing to listen to you other than, oh, God, there's Terry griping again. You know, you know, he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and must have just, you know, stepped on a, on a nail. I mean, this guy, as opposed to, man, he usually isn't like that. Maybe I better think about that. Yeah, and if you look at JB, there's we've had maybe two moments this season, one where he was ripping the team, maybe one yeah. or two after the Golden State loss where they didn't respect the game. And then the uh, the junkyard dog. What did he the, call the, them? The fat cats. cats. Yeah, yeah, right. So those and, are the two negative ones, and the one yeah, positive. There was one, one came other one about. Ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Another time he talked about being arrogant. Uh, I remember that. That actually might have been that five game losing streak out west where they were giving up 120 points every night. And he just his stomach was turning. I mean, that's. See, the other thing that's good about JB is you know how he wants to play. This is not a mystery. It is a defense first team. And this falls into the love thing. 
And now you can like Chetty Osmond, if you're hot and coming off the bench, I could find a role for you. But sometimes remember Chetty just doesn't play. And so like Kevin, if you could give me the defensive rebounding and draw some charges, I'll put up with the bad defense if you're making shots. So you got to hit three out of four of those boxes. And, you know, he was hitting maybe one or two. You know, he, he was rebounding state consistent, but that was about it. And then I think he was watching the charges because his back was – that's a problem with drawing all those charges. It beats up your back. Oh, yeah, because guys landing on you and, and wear and tear. So, all right, Terry, uh, we're going to take a break here in a minute. I, I wanted to hit you with one last thing. You gave the Cavs at the All-Star break an A-. minus. Uh, why and kind of did you deliberate about that at all in terms of higher or lower and and how did you end up with an A minus A minus B plus I sat there and go if you knew there were going to be fifteen over at the All Star break how would you feel I'd say I probably would have thought an A so I just you know they're you know that doesn't mean they're a perfect team or whatever but they're fifteen over five hundred thirty eight and twenty three you got twenty one games to go you want to finish in the top six they should do that. The, the Mitchell Garland thing has had some rocky spots, but it's not a disaster at all. Those guys really are seem to try to work work it together, and they're number one in defense. A minus. All right. Well, the Cavs are back at it on Thursday. They're home against Denver, which should be a really good game. And then Friday they're at Atlanta. Quick road trip back home Sunday against Toronto at six o'clock. And then next Wednesday. March 1st, they are at Boston. So some good games coming up there. David, before we sign off for the first half, you mentioned Denver. Micah Malone, my hero, who – because I only saw about 10 – not even 10 game minutes, like 10 TV minutes of the All-Star game. And then I really did want to throw up. And uh, (laughs) sort of Malone, because afterwards he said, you know, it's a great moment being here with all these great players and stars. But that was the worst basketball game I have ever seen. <laughs> and I'm like, preach it, brother. You are right. It's a disgrace. And I'm glad uh, a coach like Malone, who had team or LeBron, called it out. Well, I will say, Terry, I like the Elam ending. I really do. I, they've done it for every year, in, for the last couple of years in the All-Star game. And it's, for those of you who don't know what the Elam ending is, you basically at the end of the third quarter, you add a certain number of points to the leading team score and that's when the game ends is when a team reaches that score and it takes away a lot of the foul fouling at the end the up and down guys walking up and down the court in the last two minutes the the pace of the game is a lot better i would love to see that maybe added to the g league down the road here yeah year two and see how it works and like it could be it could be something they could look at at least in the regular season you know there's different rules in baseball and hockey for um for the regular mm-hmm. season and the playoffs. And I would love to see them try that Elam ending just to see how it work. Of course, then again, um, these guys will still be sitting on the court blindfolded, throwing balls at the basket over their heads so, <laughs> in the All-Star game. So I, I, we, we can't fix that. Maybe I'll they'll tell fix you, the it, next year. It's too. a disgrace. All right. All right, let's take a break, Terry. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk some Guardians. And there's some Browns news going on this week, uh, in, including today's firing of special teams coach Mike Prefer. So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. All right, we're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, you had a lovely column over the weekend about Rocky Calavito, the Indians baseball great, uh, big slugger. And 
boy, I just was struck over and over. And you, you actually wrote about this in the combat, his memory. Here's a guy. Uh, how old is he now, Terry? 89. 89. And you tend, you said you tend to call him from time to time. And, and the, the recall he has of stuff back from like 1951, really something. But talk about Rocky Calavito and how he's doing. I know there's a lot of Cleveland baseball fans who would love to hear what he's been up to and, and how he's feeling everything. Well, Rocky's 89. He had lost a uh... Uh, part of his, I forget which leg it is, but below the knee to diabetes. That happened about five years ago. And um, so I call him now and then. I was just looking for a different type of spring column, and I was looking at different players. Like I wanted to talk about their first spring training. And even though I've talked to Rocky, I mean, the curse of Rocky Calavito is in that book and so on. The thing that I never realized, I'm looking at it, and the baseball register says, says his first year, Daytona Beach, he's 17 years old. And I'm going, wow, I mean, you know, did he skip grades or what? So I called Rocky just to ask him about that, whereupon he goes into a story of how he dropped out of high school after his sophomore year, was playing for a semi-pro baseball team for a few bucks, and also working in a factory, a shoe factory in Manhattan. Rocky lived in the Bronx. And he was bleaching shoes. Meanwhile, his uh, brother, who was kind of Dominic, who was kind of his agent uh, at that time, trying to get Rocky signed. And they had to get special permission uh, permission from Commissioner and Happy Chandler. And he got it. So I then love it was that. Yeah, Terry, his brother Happy, wrote a letter to Happy, yeah, Happy Chandler. Happy Chandler say, we got to get Rocky there. And I guess Happy just was happy and he, he rubber stamped it. So fine. So when he was 17, he was able to sign a pro contract. And then he talked about, um, I said, well, didn't uh, didn't the Yankees want to sign you? You were in the Bronx, for heaven's sakes. And Rocky wanted to play for the Yankees. His favorite player is Joe DiMaggio. And he said, this Yankee scout comes in, and a guy's all arrogant. He's He doesn't even ask. He's in our little apartment at Bronx. He lights up this big stogie, blowing smoke all over the place. And, ah, kid, everybody wants to play for the Yankees. Tell you what we're going to do. You just come to spring training with us, and we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. And uh, Cleveland had been on him all the way already at that point. And this makes no sense, but they did it. When he was 16, he was – traveling with Cleveland's Class A Easterly team in Wilkes-Barre, working out for like a month. They hadn't signed or anything. And so they knew him. They had offered him $3,000 with, I think it was 1500 up front and probably 300 for the rest of his life or who knows how it was spread out. But at least he had some guaranteed money. And the Yankee guy, ah, you don't want to go to Cleveland. You know, forget them. They give you money. You want to be a Yankee. You're a New York kid. And so Rocky said, he walks out and calls his brother and goes, get rid of this guy. I can't stand him. So that's why Rocky became a Cleveland Indian instead of a New York Yankee. And then at 17, he talked about, they gave a number, I think, 374 in spring training in Daytona Beach. That's where the minor leaguers were. Every day they posted a a list of, like, those who survived and those who were to report to the office, hand in your uniform and get a bus ticket home. And he said he was terrified. You know, he kept checking that board. He didn't know. He also said they slept in a military barracks and they were woken up every morning by gunshots. So he did make it. And he had like 20-some homers and there was a Class D for the state league. It was a whole different world. Um, that's when uh, Cleveland, I think, had nine farm teams that year. They had 
three in class D, then there was class C, and class B, and class A, and double A, and triple A. So, and everybody had that. My, like my father played on a class D team in Welsh, West Virginia, which was uh, basically an independent team just right before World War II. And a lot of times you could just kind of walk in and if you they try you out and they'll sign you on a, on one of those kind of contracts. So a lot of guys were coming and going, but that was Rocky's story. And, uh, you know, he's in, uh, his memory is incredible because per- periodically I were out and you could look it up because I did. And he was right. You know, I, I mean, I was, he played with, so I was like, I said, I said, who was the best player on that team? And, uh, he said, well, there were two guys, you know, that on that class D team at Daytona beach. One was a guy named Bob Truss, I never heard of. And then the other, he says, Joe Atabelli, he batted 341. And I went and looked it up. He batted 341. I mean, Rocky is not, by the way, sitting there with his laptop or sitting there with his cell phone looking this stuff up. He is not, like most of us of a certain age, that technically uh, inclined. He just remembered Joe Atabelli, later managed the Orioles, batted 341. (laughs) And, you know, Terry, one of the great things about sports is there's always a turning point in someone's career. And, and it's one of the fun things that mm-hmm. we write about in sports where something happens and it completely changes the course of a, of a person's life and career. And that Yankee scout coming into the house and his brother saying, yeah, lose this guy. We don't want him like yeah. that, that. That one discussion turned him into one of Cleveland's greatest all time home run hitters. And think of he had it's played so in New, if he had played in New York. Oh, my goodness. I mean, he would be a, even a, he would be a huge legend there. Yep. That's some story. Well, check that column out. If you haven't read it, it ran uh, on cleveland.com and the plane dealer over the weekend. And always great to hear the latest uh, on Rocky Calavito. So um, Terry, you're headed out to Goodyear in a few weeks. Um, there's kind of some nagging, worrisome injuries going on right now with the guardians, with some of their young top prospects that they drafted the last few years. Uh, a little bit concerning, right? Yeah, we have Daniel, Daniel Espino that's got a shoulder problem. They shut him down for a couple months. Um, if he had not missed a whole bunch of time last year, I wouldn't be concerned. But he only pitched, I think, 18 innings in four games. And he had tendonitis of the knee and then shoulder problems. And then he was starting to come back. But after January, they shut him down and see. Now, you know, here's the danger. I have to admit, I have sort of a money ball bias against high school pitchers drafted like in the first round because one of the theories a scout told me this long time ago and he goes you might just give him the tommy john surgery and get it over with and that happens often is the case with these kids i'm not saying well obviously espino has a shoulder not an elbow but their arms are um you know are delicate and as far as i could recall this is of recent vintage by the way say the last 30 years the only two top for, you know, high picks that were high school pitchers that have come through over time. One was CC Sabathia, and then the other is Tristan McKenzie. But you know, I'm even got McKenzie's uh, bio up in front of me right now, and he missed all of 2019 due to shoulder problems. You know, he signed in 2015, and it took him five years to get to the majors. He pitched during the a COVID year. And then even in 21, he went back to the minors. And of course he was terrific last year. Um, so you got to be really patient with these guys and realize you know, it is risky with their arms. So that, that was one. 
the other thing to me is kind of interesting. You go back to the 2016 draft, and that was a huge draft for Cleveland because they got uh, Aaron Savali in the third round. They got Shane Beaver in the fourth round, and they got Jack Plezak in the 12th round. But the first pick in that draft, Will Benson, has since been traded to the Reds. And the second is Nolan Jones. I believe he got traded to um, Colorado. I know he's been traded. So the first two picks there um, are no longer with them. And I, I'm like, you look at your guy, say, okay, I don't think they could play. It's okay to let him go. I mean, I, I really do hate it when they just keep giving a first-round pick time, you know, trial after trial after trial simply because he's been a first-round pick. But you do like to see a better better batting average than than that. You know, the flip side is you've got Oscar Gonzalez was signed out of the Dominican. Stephen Kwan was a fifth-round pick. Will Benson was a fifth-round pick. So, that, you know, and uh, they picked up uh, Miles Straw, who, by the way, was a 10th-round pick by Houston. That's the cool thing about baseball. You could find these guys in different places. But you, you really do like to hit on those first-rounders. Yeah, and talking about Espino, Terry, he he throws the ball so hard, and yeah, and, and those guys who get up in the around a hundred consistently, it's a very violent. Throwing a baseball that fast is a violent act. Yeah, and it you know it can if you're coming down on that on that foot and that knee repeatedly, repeatedly with so much force, like it's a lot different than somebody who pitches like Greg Maddox or someone who's painting corners all the time, trying to throw breaking stuff and off speed. It's a, it, and so they're going to be very careful with him and he's really young and boy, I, I wonder if they might have him switch to the bullpen down the road just to, you never know, right? You never know. I mean, they'll, they'll yeah. look at all the different things. Um, and by the way, when I did the thing about, you know, first round picks, I, I excluded the Latin American market because that's different for a variety of reasons. You know, Bartolo Colon, they signed these kids at 15. I mean, that's a, 16 back then it's a whole other deal but those high school pitchers drafted high the, the batting averages are really low or you go this way their eras end up being really high because of injuries uh, so we'll have to see on espino because he was the kind of guy they hope could make an impact now the other flip side we'll watch gavin williams he was a college pitcher now he fell towards the bottom of the first round because earlier in his career at Eastern Carolina, he had some arm problems. But sometimes that's what I actually am talking about. They're in college. They have their arm problems. They go back to college. Then you get drafted, and they're actually more like men, and you don't have to go through the whole first series of arm problems. Um, I mean, I remember Cody Allen had Tommy John while he was still in college, and there were some other guys like that. You know, um, I, I believe Polizak had had it too. And so you have, or at least some sort of arm problem he did. So we will see. But I, I just much prefer college pitchers. And and when you look at the rotation, you know, Bieber pitched at, uh, at, at uh, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. Polizek pitched at Ball State. Uh, Savali, uh, North, Northeastern. Now, uh, McKenzie was a high school kid. Um, so you kind of, but most of the time, they're college pitchers. I just like. Uh, the batting average of, of that you get um, when you're going more in the college direction. That's why I remember a few years ago, they drafted 12,000 college pitchers and to see who comes out of that. And that'll be fun to watch that draft in about another year or two. 
Well, they don't have Class B, Class C, Triple A, Double. They've got to. They've got to just get as many pitchers as they can and see who emerges from the bucket, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and realizing that these guys are going to be hurt, and that's why they actually they poured so much money into the Goodyear facility uh, to rehab them. Yep. I, I mean, a guy they took real low in the draft. Uh, many years ago was Vinny Pisano, and he had Vinny had been a good college pitcher at some place like Fullerton or Northridge, one of those California hyphen schools. And he was coming off Tommy John surgery. And they got him well in the draft. I, and uh, I believe he was a reliever in college, but certainly they said, we're going to just put him there. And he pitched pretty well for a while. He's a guy, by the way, whose career was never the same after he pitched in the World Baseball Classic. He got hurt there. That's why Francona. He doesn't mind so much the position players playing in that, but the pitchers always make him nervous. All right. Well, speedy recovery to all those guys. And uh, the Guardians begin spring training games this weekend. You can follow Paul Hoynes' coverage from Arizona at cleveland.com slash guardians, and he'll have everything that's going on and more out there. So, uh, all right, Terry, um, we have some more emails we got from people about your idea. We asked people to send in stories of notable people they've played against, and we're running a little up against the clock here, but why don't we try and get to a few of these? I want to, there's some good ones here, and I want to get your thoughts on some of them. Um, this first one is from Bruce Reby. I hope I got your last name pronounced right, Bruce. And he says, Hi, Terry and David, born and raised in Cleveland, now live in Powell, Ohio. My father, Harvey Reby, Played in the Detroit Tiger system from 1939 to 50. He spent parts of four years in the majors. However, was mostly a career minor leaguer. In 1939, he was offered $100 by the Indians and 200 by the Tigers. Well, there like you go. The story. So yeah. he accepted Detroit's offer. Like many players of the era, my dad was called to serve in World War II. So he was gone for three seasons in the 40s. My father had about 130 at-bats in the majors in parts of those four seasons. He never complained about losing three years of his career to the war. He willingly served and was proud of what he accomplished in baseball. Love listening to your podcast, Terry. I read everything you write. You have a lot of fans in Columbus. Hope at some point you can stretch a bit and make it down here for a live session. So a uh, lovely letter there, Bruce. Thank you, and thank your father for uh, for all he did. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories like that, aren't there, Terry? Of guys yeah, that- big-name players were – Went over, went overseas and saw combat and everything else. I mean, Ted Williams was in both wars. He was in Korea and in World War II as a pilot. It was, it was a different era. Of course, bomb start falling at Fort Harbor and everything that got people's attention. Yep. All right. Here's the next one, Terry. Um, this one. Hey, Terry. Hey, Terry and David. I've never had an encounter with a famous athlete on the field of play. The high point of my athletic career was being appointed equipment manager for Euclid High's JV baseball team in 1972. <laughs> but I did have a most unusual encounter with a famous athlete who would spend time with the Cavs in the 1980s. I'm a graduate of Kent State, and during the 84-85 basketball season, I had season tickets. Somehow, the athletic department had arranged a home-and-home series with Memphis State, which was a national power due largely to Keith Lee. My friend Rob, who'd played at Wycliffe High, and I attended the game, which Memphis State won easily. They barely broke a sweat. After the game, Rob and I went to a fast food restaurant and were chatting about the game when we saw the entire Memphis State team walk in. (laughs) Even though it was the middle of December, they were still wearing their basketball sweatsuits under their coats. We recognized Keith Lee immediately, (laughs) but we dismissed any notion of approaching him for an autograph. Imagine how startled we were when he walked over to our table in his sweats. (laughs) <laughs> do either of you dudes have a safety pin he said to us 
He was apparently having a problem with his sweatsuit. Unfortunately, neither of us had a safety pin. Thanks anyway, Lee said. The restaurant wasn't crowded, and I don't remember if he approached anyone else with his request. Rob and I just looked at each other, and we wondered, did Keith Lee just ask us for a safety pin? Uh, and yes, brings, he had. And that brings up a very painful memory, because <laughs> Harry Weltman was all set to draft Carl Malone in that draft. Is that right? He had Malone in. He loved him. And then he brought in Keith Lee right towards the end of the draft. And um, he kind of did it more to, you know, they kind of did the version of who you're going to take. And Lee, who was very skilled, like in like catching the ball, shooting it and that, he had terrible knees. He then switched and took Keith Lee. You talk about decisions. Of course, Malone goes to Utah, plays forever. Lee plays here, has some problems, and then the knees went. And um, and then, actually, Harry Weltman, when he left Cleveland, went to New Jersey's general manager, he took two of his picks with him, John Bagwood and Keith Lee, and it didn't go a whole lot better there than it did in Cleveland. <laughs> well, that story came to us from Gary Webster from Willoughby Hills. Thanks, Gary, for that. He says that is a true story. So uh, we appreciate you sending that one to us. All right, Terry, this one is from Michael Smith, and Michael says, Long-time reader, first-time emailer. I grew up in Toledo, and I now reside in Seattle when when Jim Jackson was the star player in the area. Mm. Arguably the best player ever from Toledo, along with John Brisker, ended up playing for Ohio State. The summer after I graduated, I went to the University of Toledo for a pickup game, and there were several going on. I was with nine players on the floor when Jim Jackson walked in from outside, and the opposing team shouted immediately, Hey, Jim, do you want to play with us? And he obliged. (laughs) I was an honorable mention all-state player at the time and took pride in guarding the best player, so I took Jim. Almost immediately, he was posting up on the block, and (laughs) and I was anticipating and guarding behind him. The opponent lobbed the ball down low to Jackson, and before I could even notice, he had dropped steps so quickly and dunked the ball, leaving me standing flat-footed and dumbfounded. It's a move I can still picture 30 years later. One of the reasons I probably still remember this was realizing, oh, this is what it's like to play at that level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what and Mike I appreciate doing. the humility, too, as opposed to. And then I just stripped him and went, went down and I dunked on him, you know. <laughs> Ten years from now, that'll be the story, yeah. right? All right, and here's the last one we'll do today. Um, this one is from Dave Maher from South Euclid, Ohio. Dave, I hope I got your name right. It's M-A-J-H-E-R from South Euclid. Dave says, my brother Tom told me about how he faced Buddy Schultz. Uh-oh. Of Shaw High School mm-hmm. in baseball in the late 60s. Tom was a Parma, Parma junior and had never faced him. On the bus ride to the game, the other players were saying things like, I'm going to take my three swings and sit down. Mm-hmm. My, my brother envisioned Schultz being like 6'2 and 240 pounds, but couldn't mm-hmm. believe his eyes when he saw him on the mound, a skinny kid with glasses. His first at bat against Schultz, the first pitch was a fastball, and my brother thought, okay, that's good, but I've seen better. The next pitch was a fall-off-the-table curveball. His only thought after that pitch was, there is no way I can hit that. (laughs) Somehow, he did manage a weak single through the infield off Schultz that day, but he said he never faced a better pitcher that day when he faced Schultz. And uh, Buddy Schultz played for, what, maybe 10 years in the majors, mostly for the Cardinals, right, Terry? Buddy Schultz? Yeah, he did. And he actually, if I remember right, pitched two games in two days in the state tournament to get um, them to the state championship or the state finals or something like that. Um, my brother, Tom, faced him in the um, uh, uh, in the summer leagues. I'm just looking. Buddy Schultz, for his career, 
he had arm problems. That's kind of what haunted him. He was 15 and nine with a 368 ERA, primarily out, almost all out of the bullpen. So when healthy, he was a pretty good pitcher. And yes, Buddy Schultz was like, for those of us of a certain age playing amateur baseball, he was a little bit before me, but he was legendary. You know, Steve Stone was another one uh, out of Cleveland and Kent State. Uh, Shaker who, Heights, right? You know, he went to Brush. Oh, and, he went to Brush. Uh, okay. Yeah. I think he and Wes Levine were on the same team together. Hmm. Or they played in the same amateur team, one or the other. Wes, Wes, was, Wes was a good high school player, by the way. Uh, but he said he went out for baseball at Ohio State as a walk-on and discovered, oh, it's a little different. Just a bit. Uh, and that's from Dave Major. Dave, I, I wanted to make sure I got your name right. So thank you for sending that in. And uh, we, have, we have maybe one or two of those. We'll, we'll finish them off next week. But we, uh, we got to move on to Browns. If you want to send any more and we'll take a look and see if we can get it on next week's podcast, just send them in to sports at cleveland.com. So, all right, Terry, we're running a little bit late here. The host is doing a bad job, so we're going to pick it up. Uh, some Browns news today. Mike Prefer, the special teams coach, was fired today by Kevin Stefanski. There's reports out there, including confirmed by Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, that um, Bubba Ventrone, who I guess went by Ray Ventrone when he was with the Browns mm-hmm. yeah. from 2009 to 2012, is uh, he's with the Colts right now, and he's kind of at the top of their list. But were you surprised by Mike Prefer? And I guess was this justified in your mind, Terry? Uh, no and yes. No, I'm not surprised he got fired because I kept thinking they were going to do it. I asked Stefanski straight out in the post-season uh, press conference where he said, I, you know, and I made the decision to let uh, Joe Woods go as defensive coordinator. And so I asked about Prefer, and he gave this weird answer about, well, we still haven't talked yet. I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, and he said, well, we need to talk and think about it. So I figured they were waiting for something or other. Then I heard the discussion came down to if we could find someone better, um, let's do it. If not, if we're going to basically get another mediocre second team, uh, special teams coach, keep the guy we have. That was what it came down to. So uh, when Ventrone became available, and I think there might be one or two other guys who want to look at, um, they decided to let him go. He had a year to go on his contract. Uh, you know, what do you want to talk about? Three block kicks? Do you want to talk about not getting some onside kicks? Um, penalties? It, well, it just the good. eye test, too, Terry. I mean, they, yeah. I, the Browns special teams ranked 18th in the NFL. But if you look at the special teams' body of work in 2022 and you ask yourself, all right, is that championship level special teams? I mean, the answer is no. Like, it, ju- it just wasn't. They were last in the NFL in um, 12.3 yards per opponent punt return. That's I mean, really that's, bad. Yeah, that's, that's not really going to get bad. it done. Uh, and they didn't recover any onside kicks when the Browns really needed them. They're just, no. They just weren't contributing to winning It took them forever to get the um, Jerome Ford and Donovan People-Jones running kicks back, um, which remember they kept trying Felton, and Demetrius Felton scared me to death all the time. I would think he fumbled half the things kicked to him. And I don't know how much uh, uh, he's going to be able to – you could blame him for the problems with uh, with Cade, uh, the kicker, but I don't know. You have to do something. Look, if you're Andrew Barry and if you're Kevin Stefanski, your jobs are on the line. Let's get real here. And you know this. Joe Woods was not a championship level, as you said, uh, defensive coordinator. Jim Schwartz has got that on his resume. And then you sit there and you go, Mike Prefer, 
who actually went back to Minnesota with um, Stefanski, has just been okay. And prefer, you say, all right, they face it was famous Amos Jones. Remember Amos Jones, I believe, was it? Who was like a career horrendous special teams coach was there, and they got rid of him and brought in Prefer. Uh, but it's just you know, Prefer had some nice moments. I mean, and you've got to, I'll tell you, it wasn't easy for him to I think be that head coach in that playoff game, and and also it was interesting too when. Uh, Zimmer, Zimmer has some problems as the head coach, some health problems in Minnesota. Uh, he had made Prefer was the head coach there a couple of those games. So there were some good things about him. They felt in leadership and that. But special teams, you got to be, it's a unique guy that could do it. Uh, Ventrone is interesting to me because he is a disciple of my all-time favorite special teams coach who even right now at the age of 66 he has been out of the NFL for two years. I would call him. That's Brad Seeley, who was a Belichick disciple and was here uh, and a couple of other places. He retired in 2000, after 2020. Um, and maybe because Mangini set me up for an hour interview one time with Brad Seeley, he explained to me all kinds of stuff about special teams, which actually kind of ruined me for the coaches after that because, one, he was so good about talking about it. Secondly, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's kind of like if you sit down with a guy who has like real strong theories and how this ought to be done and you see other people doing it, it's like to a guy like Seeley, you know, I'm not putting Felton back there. He bobbles the ball once. I don't want to see it anymore. You know, I want that ball caught and I want you running in a straight line unless you're one of these elite, you know, return guys. You know, that's another. I want two veterans that I could count on you know, to make sure that we don't get kicks blocked, you know, especially the punts you know, back there. That I want, you know, this is how you do it. And, you know, he said Belichick would give him those players. Man, Genie would give him a couple players. He says, then I could build around it because I need these guys to teach those young guys who are mad about not starting and now on special teams that they could have a whole career or this is what you need to do. So hopefully uh, Bubba came up through that ranks and apparently has done a pretty good job with the Colts. So I'm real open to it. Yeah. And Terry, just to take inventory here. This is five members of Kevin Stefanski's staff. who have left a prefer Drew Petzing, the quarterback's coach, Jeff Howard, the secondary coach, uh, Chris Kiffin, the line coach, and of course, uh, Joe Woods. So, and we're seeing reports today that uh, Utah state's defensive coordinator, Ephraim Banda is going to become the Browns safeties coach. So it looks like he'll be down to four, openings uh, I mean that was today yeah and that was one of the things too where David where remember uh, I, I got some emails from fans that say well they asked Schwartz that they're gonna you know replace anybody on this defensive staff and he said well this it's really Kevin Stefanski staff I mean Schwartz is too smart to go oh, no don't worry I'm gonna get rid of a whole bunch of these guys and I've, I got some guys already he didn't take that job unless he had handed them a list of people that he was interested in hiring of course he did they knew exactly what's going there, only they, he kept his smart. He kept his mouth shut. And all of a sudden, here comes this press release. This guy's gone, and that guy's gone. And by the way, remember, it's probably somewhat unfair, but I'm not going to go beyond that. Remember, Howard gave that absolutely incomprehensible answer on coverage at that press conference thing a few years or a few months months ago. And But you're just thinking, if that's what he was explaining 
if it's anything like what he's saying to the players, then wonder why they didn't know who to cover. It's the opposite of Lenny Wilkins. Yes. <laughs> one, one or two things. Yeah, Moore was a lot less is what that was. <laughs> That's right. So, But remember, right. it was it was incomprehensible. If you were to try to diagram that sentence, you know, you would get a crazy quilt. It made no sense. <laughs> and that's why you get three guys standing there pointing at each other. Yeah, and this is the time of year, Terry, with the combine coming up next week where sometimes, you're right, they don't fire coaches sometimes, but they'll be like, you know what, if you have another opportunity and you can meet some people at the combine, uh, this yep. might be a good time for you to take that. So that that's what we'll probably be seeing here the next week or two around the league. So. All right, we got a few Hey Terry questions, then we'll wrap up. Terry, you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, this one is from Rich Smith from Columbus, Ohio. And Rich says, Hey Terry, it's hard to believe it, but this Saturday is the first spring training game. When do you head to Arizona, and which prospects are you most interested in seeing play? I'm going to be going the um, middle of uh, Arizona. and I, Middle of Arizona is where I'll be being at Phoenix. How about the middle of March? Um and let's see, prospects, I really want to see Gavin Williams. I want to see BB pitch. Uh, that's another college pitcher. Uh, I want to take a look at Valera, see what he looks like. Bo Naylor is going to be playing for Canada, so he probably won't be there. Uh, and then a lot of times you just sit there and just see who shows up in a game. I, I was watching a minor league game. This is um, in 2020. I was there right as they shut down spring training, and it's a minor league game in the morning. And they rolled out Cody Morris, who came out. I had never heard of Cody Morris. And I'm looking at this big six foot four, 220 guy. Then I look it up, uh-uh, college pitcher, South Carolina. I'm like, and I like this guy. So I remember a, a guy who's coming up, Tim Heron, is moving his way up as a left-handed reliever. He pitched, this was like a Class A game. So you just kind of go around and, and you, just, you see people. Uh, one of my favorite stories was, I'm watching a game. Mark Shapiro invited me. That's, this is in the old days up to his, his box. This is like 2012 or 13. Anyway, this is when Lindor, who was the number one pick everybody was aware of, and they called Lindor and this little guy named Jose Ramirez up from the minor league camp. And they put Jose's playing second and Lindor's playing short. And they started him in this game. And I'm watching this thing. And, you know, Jose but, – 20 or 40 pounds less than he is now, but he just slaps a couple base hits. He turns a double play with Lindor and I'm going to, to Shapiro. Who is this kid with Lindor? I mean, you know, we, and Lindor looked terrific. And, and I said, but he, you would think he's like a first round pick too. He goes, yeah, we got him. You know, we got him on the, basically got him on the cheap of the Dominican. And if you look and I looked, he'd hit like 320 at Lake County the year before. So you see stuff like that where people just fall in your lap kind of now you know there's more stuff available online to check for prospects but those are 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 some of the guys that um i'm anxious to see and i'll come out of there liking a couple of other guys that uh, um you know probably uh whose names are not real common um to on our lips right now well Terry, what the listeners of the podcast want to know is is Roberta the number one scout? Yeah. Or the Terry's talking about She is going podcast, with me. Going with you, yes. Yeah. When I fell in love with Owen Miller, baseball love, she fell in love with dum dum Stephen Kwan. And I remember her other one in spring training many years ago when they had just got him in a trade from Seattle was Shin Tu Chu. All right. So when you're out there, we'll do a pod while you're out there. That'll okay. That. We and we'll have Roberta on. Ask her who she likes. For sure. Yeah. We'll want to hear, get some names and I'm sure Guardians fans will want to hear uh, who the hot prospects for 2023 are and 
your batting average at both of you on those are is really good. So that'll be excellent. <laughs> yeah, so. Owen Miller got traded too. So there you go. <laughs> All right. So um, I wanted to tease something for next week's Terry. We don't have time to get into it right now, but we've gotten a really good question from longtime friend of the show, Paul Cosgrove, about padded football helmets. That'll be a good discussion for next week and, and uh, just to give you a teaser for next week's podcast. So. All right, I think we are out of time. Uh, do you have a book recommendation for this week, Terry? No, I don't actually, and I should have. I just like, got done from Kate going leaving Case Western Reserve. I'm doing a congrats on Todd McGinnis, the basketball team there. First time ever they won their um, league title, and they have an automatic berth to the Division Three title, second year in a row. How about this? In all the years Case Western Reserves play basketball, they had never won the league title before. And this is the second year in a row of the NCAA, and they had never done that before either. They've never been in the tournament once. Not even out of February, and they've already clinched the league's yep. title and, and NCAA tournament berth. So, all right. Uh, just another plug for Terry's appearance at the Niles McKinley Library. That'll be on Tuesday, March 7th at 630. Bring any Terry Pluto books, or you can go buy some at terrypluto.com and bring them with you that night, and he will sign them. Uh, go to cleveland.com and become a subscriber. We'd love to have you on board. A lot of great benefits. The easiest way to do that, go to cleveland.com slash Browns and click on the blue banner at the top. I think we're good, right? Yeah, that is it. All right. Thanks for the time, Terry. Thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll see you next week on Terry's Talking.